Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Well, we're going to carry on this morning looking at these opening verses of Isaiah 6. This is the 11th week, and uh, you'll be pleased to know next week is the last week on this part. And we're going to break some new ground this morning. We're going to look at another two verses. How about that? So here's the opening seven verses of Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, here goes. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. As we've looked at the words of Isaiah over the past weeks, we've begun to see God's perspective on his people as he spoke through that prophet. We've seen how closely our society today resembles that in Isaiah's day. And we can have no doubt that the message God had for his people then is equally relevant for us today. Because we live in a degraded spiritual and moral climate. Very similar to that of the day of Isaiah. And that's why these indictments that the prophet proclaimed strike such strong resonance with us today. Who knows 
what God is going to do in our nation during the coming years. Back in the late 19th century, the founder of the Salvation Army, General William Booth, predicted six things that would mark out the 20th century and dominate the life of the church, and particularly the lives of the church's young people as the new century dawned. These are the six things that he foresaw. He foresaw religion without the Holy Spirit. He saw forgiveness without repentance. He saw conversion without new birth. He saw Christianity without Christ. He saw politics without God. And he saw heaven without hell. And in seeing those things, he predicted a very dark view of what the future had in store. Certainly, if that was all there was to it. But Booth also predicted something else. He predicted a series of mighty revivals and visitations of God that would come to this nation and turn the situation around completely. When I look at those first six points, I think he was surely right. And all I can say is, if he isn't right about his seventh, then God help us. Because I believe that if we are ever to see revival truly sweep across our land, then revival, first of all, needs to sweep through our lives as individuals. Back in the 17th century, the French theologian Francois Fenelon said, We have to die in order to live. In many ways, whenever we truly meet God in our lives, just as Isaiah did in the temple that day, that meeting is a date with death. But it's also the start of a new life. There's a dying and there's a resurrection that takes place in any authentic encounter with God. God's waiting for an opportunity to pass sentence on our old way of life. And it has only one penalty, death. But thankfully, it's always with a view to resurrecting us into a brand new life with a brand new purpose. And when we meet with God and when we die to ourselves, all our ambitions, our plans, our self-will, our priorities, fall under that axe of God's death sentence. Because it's only when we are truly dead that we're really useful to God. Only then can he begin to arrange the resurrection in our life that means we can really start to live out the first day of the rest of our lives. And then nothing will be the same again. We have no idea at that point 
what God's going to do with us. But what we do know, that if God is doing the planning, then it's going to be something great. Actually, it's going to be something great indeed. Jesus described this process himself. You can read about it in John 12, verses 24 and 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The image Jesus creates for us here is a powerful one. A grain of wheat has great potential. But the potential to produce something greater than itself is all it has until it's actually planted in the ground and dies. It has to be sown in that dark, damp earth of some field. And there it stays until it splits open and perishes. And at that point, all the potential of that seed is taken up. It's totally consumed. Because the starch that was formerly locked up in it is eaten away. And only then can it begin to release its hidden potential. Its potential to multiply. Unless it falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone and unused. That's a terrible thing. That's what wasted potential is. To live the whole of your life and then ultimately die with nothing to show for the fact that you were here. God has given us the potential to multiply. And Jesus said, we will multiply 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And all of those are returns way and beyond the average yield that a farmer would reasonably expect from a single grain of wheat. But that's because these are heavenly statistics, not natural ones. We need to surrender ourselves to God's purposes so that we can get hold of this power of multiplication. And it was at that point when Isaiah realised the degree of his own sinfulness and the horror of the sin that was going on in the nation around him, he died to himself. He surrendered himself to God. And in that moment, he was cleansed and he was commissioned for service. This was the call of God on Isaiah's life. Because the call of God occurs at the place of death. Most of us fear dying. But God takes the sting out of it. And as with Isaiah, we'll come to see that in this dying experience, it paved the way for a fullness of life. One that he had never experienced before. In his 
commission, Isaiah received God's heart for the world. And what it did was it orientated him properly towards God. And it showed him the hard-hearted and deluded people that he would later set out to reach. His life was revolutionised. He moved from a place of fear to one of faith. Verses 6 and 7 of this passage tell us of that moment when Isaiah was seared by God and cleansed of his sin. It says, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The result of that action was the impartation of life where before there had only been death. Think about it. Isaiah had seen and heard the news about a dead king. He was part of a faithlessness and dead religion. He was living upon, in amongst a dead and dying nation. And then he saw himself as a dead priest. And he realised that actually he only carried a dead message because no one's life was being changed by it. And then, in these moments in the temple, it must have felt like time stood still because suddenly he was empowered with a life and a vitality of the Holy Spirit that he'd never dreamt was possible. And I want to look at three distinct aspects of that moment. The first one is the seraph with the live coal. Here's one of these heavenly creatures, blazing in their glory and their brightness. A frightening, awesome being who was usually seen as a representative of the very presence of God and who came at Yahweh's command. And he came to Isaiah. And that angelic messenger took fire from the blazing altar and took it across to this dead, dull, dead spirit of a man who was barely half alive. Before this moment of transformation... Isaiah is representative of where too much of the church around the world currently is. We're neither here nor there. We're not ruined for this world, but not enjoying heaven either. We're in a backslidden state where we're no good to God and no good to the world. And as a result of that, the world treats the church with contempt. How differently would the world view us if we were really on fire for God? This is what John Wesley said to his lay preachers. Get on fire for God and men and women will come to watch you burn. I think that's a great saying. 
get on fire for God and men and women will come to watch you burn. The fire of God cleanses us. But it also energises our spirits. And that is a mystery both to us and to the rest of the world. Now notice, this angel had to use tongs in order to take up a burning coal and to take it across and touch Isaiah's lips. That seems strange on the first look at it. Because do angels burn? But this angel, himself a holy being that had never sinned, had no right to take a coal from the altar and handed it. Why? Because angels have no personal experience of the anointing of God's Holy Spirit for the kind of ministry that God calls men and women to. They have no experience of the preaching of his word and the gospel. They've never experienced that privilege and they never will. They don't know what it is like to experience the power of the gospel. They are never commissioned to be preachers of the gospel. They've not been, they've not been called to engage in mission. And so they never go to lost men and women with the good news of the saving grace of Jesus. They cannot therefore be commissioned, anointed, cleansed, renewed or consecrated for that task. They're servants of God. But their role is entirely different from the type of role that God gives us. And so God uses this holy fire to burn the lips of his prophet. And in so doing, he fills Isaiah's whole being with a blazing flame that goes on to sustain a 60-year ministry. And one that still speaks to us with relevance 3,000 years later. Only God's power can do that type of thing. And then when we look where this coal came from, what we see is it is a live altar with a burning fire. If we understand this passage, the angel took up a burning coal from the altar in the temple. He didn't pluck it from some strange spiritual place in heaven. This act isn't metaphorical, it isn't imagined. We have to picture a very real altar in the courts of the temple. Because that is where Isaiah went and met with God. And whichever altar it was, it was used as a means of both purging and purifying Isaiah. Now, the altar in the outer courts was recognised in the temple as the place of sacrifice for every person. It was right in the heart of Jerusalem and worshippers visiting the temple would bring animals to this brazen altar in the outer court in order to have them sacrificed as an atonement for their sins. The altar itself is square in shape each side was about eight to nine metres long. 
and it had a grate about halfway down its side and a grill underneath it that contained coals burning. And each sacrificial animal would be slaughtered with a knife. Its blood would be spilt into a bowl. That blood-red flow that spoke solemnly and unforgettably to both the priest and the people of the fact that, as it says in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. And we mustn't minimise or dismiss the true horrors that Christ had on the cross because of that. The word blood demands we take that seriously. If no blood is available, no forgiveness is possible. We mustn't dismiss that because scripture insists that it's there. You can look further at that in Acts 20, uh, verse 28, or Ephesians 1, verse 7, or Ephesians 2, 13. But then this animal, having had its blood spilt, was then disemboweled in front of the worshipper. Its carcass was hung on the horns of the altar and then thrown onto the fiery grating. The sacrifice represented that person's death. And then in some kind of divine exchange, the death of that animal meant that the sinful worshipper could continue to live. The animal was brought into complete identification with the priest and the people's sins. Because before it was... before it was killed, the priest would have previously laid its hands on his head, pressing it down into the skull and transferring the guilt of the worshippers onto the animal. Onto this animal that was formerly perfect, unblemished and innocent. Just like Christ on the cross. And this alone could atone for Isaiah's sin. This word atone comes from a Hebrew word keeper which means to ransom or to deliver by means of a substitute. And throughout the Bible the message is stated time and time again that ultimately God himself will pay the ransom price, bringing our deliverance from captivity and bringing deliverance from certain death because of our sin. The altar in the temple and later the cross at Calvary deals with God's wrath against sin. And unbelievers live daily under that wrath. Look in John 3.36. And that's a factor that should make perfect sense to us, as it does to anyone who's seen the real problem. C.S. Lewis wrote, When we merely say we are bad, the wrath of God seems a barbarous doctrine. 
As soon as we perceive our badness, it appears inevitable. A mere corollary from God's goodness. That's why the vital thing we need to feel is a true fear of God. At least initially. For the cross is then seen as the only bridge possible across the gulf between sinful man and a holy God. And we can only truly know God's love after conversion. Romans 5.5 tells us that. The cross vividly shows us the loving heart of God who understands our sin, understands our suffering and our fear and yet then willingly suffered them on our behalf. Think just for a moment about how the fulfilment of sacrifices like these at Calvary where our substitute Jesus did the same for us once and for all meant there was no need for any repetition. Christ became sinner for us. He was seen guilty in our place by God. He literally stood in the dock, was strapped to the whipping post and finally hung on the cross for us. He took the rap. He took the rap for debts that he didn't owe and for people who couldn't pay. He was literally nailed for them. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 we read For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the divine exchange. This is the divine exchange that made it possible for the unjust to be justified. It's what made it possible for our acquittal. It hung on his condemnation. John Stott describes it. What was transferred to Christ was not moral qualities but legal consequences. In consequence, Christ had no sin but our sin, and we have no righteousness but his righteousness. The cross was not a failure. It was the fulfilment of God's plan. There was a cross in the heart of God long before there was one set on Calvary's hill. The Bible is steady in its testimony about the nature of atonement that God insisted upon. It tells us throughout the Bible that God required a substitute. He required the shedding of blood and he required an altar to be sprinkled with that blood in his presence. And Isaiah stood near just such an altar. 
Now if this is the same place that the angel took the burning coal from, then it can be seen as what's known as a foreshadowing of Calvary. Where not an animal, but the most righteous and perfect man who ever lived stood in our place. Stripped, naked, flayed alive, pierced with nails, to hang bleeding on a cross under the blazing fire of God's judgment so that the place of death could become a source of life for us for sinful men and women the cross is the final proof that we were all headed towards a violent end but that punishment was fully meted out on Christ for us Christ's death was not some pointless martyrdom. It wasn't just an example of a sacrifice for our selfish lives. But it was a clear and necessary substitution for our lives. The cross removes all danger of death from our lives forever. And the resurrection breathes into us a new life that replaces that death. And that has got to be the greatest news that we could ever hear. Richard Booth, the uh, former rector of All Souls Langham, says, The difference between Christianity and all other religions is a four-letter word. In other religions it is all do, do, do. But in Christianity it's done, done, done. In the cross sin is cursed and cancelled. In the cross grace is glorious and available. And Isaiah experienced that grace. He met the living God at the altar. And metaphorically speaking, he became a living sacrifice, died and was cleansed to become a holy and acceptable person to God. The fire that came upon him suddenly, along with this burning coal, would continue to burn inside him for the duration of his life on earth. This was a man who was going to prove to be very dangerous indeed during the next 60 years in his nation before being finally taken home to glory. Isaiah would prove to be dangerous to sin He'd be dangerous to Satan and his hordes. He was dangerous to unbelief. He was dangerous to false religion, to hypocrisy, and to false piety and pretense. Someone once said, the kingdom of Satan is proof against everything except fire. Fire is the one thing that disarms Satan and throws back his power. Holy fire. God's fire. The fire that emanates from the cross 
of Christ himself. And then the third point. The angel spoke to Isaiah. And listen to what he said. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In other words, Isaiah was now clean. He was right with God. These words from the angel weren't just empty words. They're fact, not fiction. Now, the words that Sarah spoke are what's sometimes termed as a performative utterance. Okay? There are some statements that can be made that are essential to the act we are performing at the time. An example of this would be when in a wedding service a minister says to the couple standing in front of him, I now pronounce you man and wife. That statement is not just a description of the couple, although in truth it is, but those very words perform the event of marrying them. And as a result, it dramatically changes their status, their lives and their identity. And in the same way, this angel's words imparted the cleansing power of God to Isaiah. And at that very moment, God declared them over him and said, It is so. When God says to a man, You are clean... You are clean. Just like that. Instantly. What happened to Isaiah that day was effectively the process of salvation. And the effects of this salvation really were instantaneous. Because the verbs that are used in this passage when it's translated as atoned for, are in the perfect tense. The perfect tense are verbs that speak of a completed action. But he was not saying, you are being atoned for. You have been atoned for. It has happened. It is complete. And so we see that Isaiah had become the recipient of a God-given remedy to what would otherwise be an unsolvable problem in his life. Because in that moment, with the holy fire, Isaiah's sins were burnt out of him. Every aspect of Isaiah's encounter speaks of the cross. The cross is God's last word to men, but it's an endless word. Once the blessing of healing has been spoken over your life from the cross, you're finished. Because your life has ended and then begun again. The writer Oswald Chambers expressed it like this. It was at the cross... But the prince of this world, Satan, was finally judged. There, sin is killed and pride is done to death. 
there, lust is frozen and self-interest is slaughtered. Not one can get through. He then continues, The cross is the point where God and sinful man merge with a crash. And the way of life is opened. But the crash is on the heart of God. The cross is the presentation of God having done his bit. That which man could never do. The foundation of the Christian faith is rooted in the fact that we have been redeemed at the cross. The price has been paid to buy us back from our captivity to sin and destruction. And on that basis, God can perform miracles in our lives. This is what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34-36. I've paraphrased it. If you would be my disciples, then you must give up absolutely everything that you are and everything that you have and surrender it to me. We have to remember, we're not here on earth to do our will, but God's. And so we have to come to this point that Isaiah came to when we come to the cross and give up our independence. Where we give way to the claims that God has on our life and put to death our own selfish ambition. And where we finally surrender to God's higher will and purpose. When Isaiah did this, he moved. He moved from fear to faith. And a whole new chapter of life opened up for him. Now we might feel totally inadequate and unprepared for what God has in store for us. But we still have to come to that place where we have only one choice to make. And that choice is a simple one. It's trust or bust. The need for us to be utterly dependent on God is designed primarily to bring him glory. To make him look as great and powerful as he really is. And to make his enemies look as small and insignificant as they really are. And when you look at what happened to Isaiah, you realise it is a privilege to be downsized by God. So that we're no longer living within the horizon that we can see with our own eyes. But we're living in an area that was designed by someone far greater than ourselves. There's nothing that wicked men or demons can do to a person who's seen the greatness of God the way Isaiah has. Ah, that we would see God in that way. I just want to ask you this morning. Have you come to the cross in that way? 
the way Isaiah met with God in the temple. Have you put down everything of yourself? Have you given up on your plans and your aspirations? Have you set aside your finance and money? Here's a hard one. Have you sacrificed your family and friends? Have you put them down? Have you cast them on the altar? Have you shed anything that might stop you fulfilling everything that God has planned for your life? Have you let God set you alight? I just want to take you back to that one quote from John Wesley. The thing that always staggers me about the Methodist Church. I grew up in the Methodist Church. And uh, on the one hand, it barely seems to have much life in it these days. But the Methodist revival was a movement that so changed our nation that you can't go through a village without seeing a chapel. It may not be in use now, but in every village, in every town, in every city, lives were changed. People were turned to God because of the faithfulness and the passion of the early Methodist church. And John Wesley's quote was, Get on fire for God. Get on fire for God. And men and women will come and watch you burn. There's something attractive about people that are on fire for God. Are you on fire for God this morning? We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 